Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and this episode is Q&A number 18. If you have questions that you want me to answer on the podcast, send them to me on michael at scientifictriathlon.com or on Facebook, there's a widget in the bottom right corner of my website scientifictriathlon.com. Before we get into today's questions, a big thanks to our sponsors. First, we have Retool. Retool is a bike fitting system that uses a unique Vantage 3D motion capture technology. This system can accurately measure every degree of movement and every millimeter of distance that you have in your bike fit and that you do while you're pedaling your bike. And this provides the fitter with data that supports all the choices that are made during the bike fit for your cycling experience, your comfort, your being injury-free and your producing a lot of power and being aerodynamic on the bike. I think it's a, a super cool experience myself because you can see it on a big screen, at least where I go to get my retool bike fits, uh, what's happening. You can see all the distances, the angles, etc. Everything is uh, pointed out there in terms of millimeter changes or changes of angles. So it it makes you feel involved and uh, and it's uh, it's a really neat experience when you have a retool bike fit to see that technology in use in real time. To learn more about the retool bike fitting process, go to retool.com forward slash TTS, as in that triathlon show. And retool is spelled R-E-T-U-L. And there you can find an authorized retool experience center near you and book an appointment. Big thanks also to Hit Science. Uh, as I talked about last week, we had Paul Larson on again in episode 163 called Interval Training, Science and Application. And uh, the HIT Science course that uh, has this as its uh, big, big topic, Science and Application of Interval Training, it launched yesterday by the time that this episode airs. Uh, so that date would have been January 23rd of 2019. And the enrollment for the HIT Science course is only open until January 31st so after that who knows when it will be available next time so uh, better enroll now if this is something that you feel that you need to know more about and if you are a coach a sports scientist or a sports science student or perhaps even an athlete then you do need to know more about interval training it's uh, such an important part of the endurance training puzzle and solving the performance puzzle as is talked about in the course so i highly highly recommend it i am uh, I have completed the first two weeks myself because I got early access to the course and it has been absolutely fascinating. One of the things that I wrote down in my notes while I was going through the second week was uh, this week was about the prescription of high-intensity interval training. And one of the things that I wrote down as uh, as my takeaways, I guess, from, from the week was that was the problem of basing interval training on a given percentage of threshold pace or power as is typically done, and uh, to some extent I also still do it. Uh, but uh, the fact is that the percentage of VO2 max that uh, is an athlete's threshold is highly dependent on the individual. Uh, so uh, to make that clear, I don't know if I may have made it very clear, but uh, as an example, for me, my threshold power on the bike is 86% of my, uh, my power at VO2 max. Uh, so in other words, my power at VO2 max is 116% of my threshold power. But uh, for one of the athletes that I coach, for example, he also just completed a metabolic profiling test this last weekend, like I did. 
and his threshold was at 76% of his VO2 max power. And that means that uh, his power at VO2 max is actually 132% of threshold power. So a massive difference uh, between us as individuals in how many percentage above threshold we should go in our respective VO2 max intervals. Uh, and if you don't have access to metabolic profiling right now, what I recommend you do is to do just a four-minute all-out time trial instead. And that is talked about in the HIIT science course as a practical way that you can find your um, your power at VO2 max on the bike. So just take your average power for that four-minute time trial, and there you have your power at VO2 max. To read more about the course and enroll in it, go to scientifictriathlon.com forward slash H-I-I-T as in HIT high-intensity interval training, and enroll there. And uh, I am an affiliate for the course, so I do get an affiliate commission if you go through that link. If you don't want to do that, it, does, it doesn't cost you anything extra. Uh, but if you'd rather sign up directly, then just go to hitscience.com instead. All right, so on to today's questions. First, we have uh, Claire Roche from uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, she writes, Hi, Michael. Uh, Claire Roche here. I wanted to ask your views on the Matheson formula 180 minus age uh, for heart rate. Are there papers that confirm doing this in the pre preparation phase and base phase? Uh, and are there papers that confirm that doing this improves aerobic endurance and efficiency in recreational athletes rather than just in elites? Is it only appropriate for those doing events taking longer than two to three hours or does it help at shorter distances? Thanks as ever for your time. Thank you, Claire, for your question. It's a really good one because uh, this is a method and a formula that is talked about a lot, and I think it needs to go away, uh, if I'm very honest. Uh, there is uh, no evidence uh, at all that this formula works, and uh, I'll go into that in more detail. But the, the take-home message is that there is zero evidence, and it's not much better than the 220 minus age formula. I know that the Mafton formula the 180 formula does have some modifiers to it like if you have been injured uh, you should reduce five beats per minute from it but it doesn't make any sense because uh, whether you've been injured or not doesn't really affect uh, what your your heart rate for a given metabolic effort is so so i really don't think that it makes it much better than the 220 minus age formula despite those modifiers before going deeper, I did talk about, uh, tangentially at least, about uh, this uh, formula and the method in Q&A episode number 11. That one was called, should you use different heart rate zones for swimming, cycling and running? So I'll link to that in the episode description. But uh, yeah, I uh, took more of a deep dive at this time pre preparing for this question. So so I did go to, to PubMed and Google Scholar and uh, look for, for Phil Matheson's publications and uh, he has uh, six of them on PubMed, and uh, none of them have to do with uh, with this 180 formula. In a normal Google search, I did find a white paper on it that seems to be sort of like the the gold standard resource uh, on on this uh, this formula and this method. But uh, that's just a white paper uh, with uh, which uh, Mathtone offered. But uh, there's no peer-reviewed articles on this formula at all. Uh, in reading that white paper, though, I did read it, and uh, I did find uh, a little bit of a research origin of the formula, and that's not a peer-reviewed article either, uh, but uh, it is a poster presented at the conference called uh, Medicine and Science in Ultra-Endurance Sports, 
and that was from 2015. And the poster was called The Development and Initial Assessment of a Novel Heart Rate Training Formula. I'll link to that uh, poster in the in the episode description as well, so you can have a look. So, yeah, let me just read directly from the poster here. I'm going to zoom in a bit because the font is really small here. Uh, so, uh, just jumping to the methods, it says... In group 1, 223 male and female non-injured experienced adult runners underwent extensive clinical evaluation and running gait analysis to determine the highest heart rate associated with an optimal running gait. Athletes were assigned training heart rates just below this and told to maintain their previous weekly mileage at or below their assigned heart rate. Pre- and post-study 5km races were performed on certified courses. In group 2, 38 participants were assigned a training heart rate using the methods above, while 39 controls maintained their normal training schedule. Uh, So my comment here, I think this is really a bit confusing because they have two groups, but group 2 is split into two, so it it, it is a bit confusing there. But uh, reading on the results... In group 1, 223 out of 225 runners completed the program. 170 of 223 runners improved their 5km race times. That was 76.2%. In group 2, 42 of 42 completed the program. The monitor group, so that was the the group that just continued uh, the training as before. Within group 2, they had an injury rate of 2 out of 21 runners. Um, and the control group, sorry, the monitor group was obviously the the group of runners in group two that changed their heart rate and used the, the 180 formula. The monitor group had an injury rate of two of 21 runners and the control group had an injury rate of 13 of 21. The assigned, this was statistically significantly different. The assigned heart rates of these two groups of athletes were used to create a formula called the 180 formula uh, for use as a training intensity guide. So uh, there you go. I'm not going to go into the conclusions, but uh, there you have like what the background of 180 formula is. So they they actually took uh, they evaluated the gait, the running gait of these athletes, and uh, and based the heart rate off of that. And uh, right away, this brings about some some problems here. So the running gait it doesn't really have anything to do with the metabolic demands, uh, which heart rate is an indicator of. So, so I don't think that these are really they, they should not be connected this way, and uh, yeah, I misspoke when I said that they did use the one eighty formula here. They did not obviously. They did use that running gait based analysis in this study, and then based on that, that's how the one eighty formula came up. But still, we we are still taking this one eighty formula from an average of runners that probably had still there was an average, but there there must have been. Uh, quite significant differences in heart rate because that's just the way heart rate works it is very individual and it has much less to do with with age than it has to do with the individual Uh, the thing about this uh, like if you look at the comparison group two here where they compared the the running gait the uh, the assigned heart rate with uh, just keep training the way that you used to train uh, the reason that uh, the former group that did change they were assigned a heart rate that they performed better and were less injured uh, actually it doesn't say that they performed better but at least they were less injured uh, the problem here is that left to their own devices most recreational athletes will constantly train at a moderate intensity and that is a big problem there's no denying that and uh, and Phil Mafton is 
absolutely right about that. And it's probably the biggest problem in endurance sports. Uh, but that's not to say that uh, the 180 formula is the cure for that. The cure for that is to actually uh, check the ego at, at the door and uh, not go harder than you should when you're when you're training easy and actually have individual heart rate zones that are individual individual to you rather than a 180 formula that is based on an average of, of runners. And uh, again, I think I have a gut feeling that these runners were really like really not very well trained it doesn't really say anything about their ability level but that's the gut feeling that i get so what this proves if it does prove anything because it's not published research really it's just a poster but it's that the math formula the 180 formula it works on average it works better than than being left to their own devices for recreational athletes and uh, given that we don't know the ability of these runners again i have my suspicions I don't think that uh, that's much evidence at all. In addition to like there being zero scientific evidence in my books, no peer-reviewed research, and uh, this one poster that exists with the methods behind the 180 formula, it does not make sense to me. <laughs> I do not see the connection there between the gait analysis and connecting connecting heart rate to like different gait analysis patterns or uh, effectiveness of of the gait of the runner like that is sort of subjective <laughs> quite a lot of subjectiveness in in that so, so i don't think that the the study method it really really doesn't add up in my opinion uh, plus it's not pre-reviewed at all but in addition to this uh, we we have established that there's no good scientific evidence but anecdotally it doesn't make sense either for example, personally, I would be overtrained within two weeks if I followed the math method. And that is completely opposite of what the uh, the intention of the math method is. It is to hold people back, usually more so than pushing them. But uh, for me, the 180 formula, including modifiers, would uh, give me a heart rate to follow of 152. And, and I know that if I go at this heart rate, I, when I'm running, for example, uh, I'm running more or less at my anaerobic threshold. Uh, so so I would constantly be running close to my anaerobic threshold and I would get overtrained very, very quickly. So uh, this goes to show I'm 28 years old and heart rate has very little to do with age. Mine happens to be uh, very low and uh, there are plenty of others in the same boat and there are plenty of older athletes with unusually high heart rate. That's why you cannot do use a formula like this because it is so individual. Uh, it does increase uh, decrease with age, sorry, but the starting point where you are when you're 20, for example, is so massively different from individual to individual that uh, that one single formula based on based on a set point, a set constant like 180 minus H, that does not make sense at all. As an example, uh, this weekend, me and two of my coach athletes, we all did the critical power tests with metabolic profiling on the bike. And uh, these tests included a 15-second sprint, uh, sprint, a 4-minute time trial, and a 20-minute time trial. And just looking at the average 20-minute time trial heart rates for us, for myself, at uh, 28 years old, my average heart rate was 160. For Chris, who is uh, 46 years old, his average heart rate was 156, so very, very close to mine, at uh, 12 years older. And for Luciana, uh, she's uh, 39 years old, her average heart rate was 174. So 14 higher than myself, even though she's 11 years older. 
And she's seven years younger than Chris, but uh, has a heart rate that is 18 beats per minute uh, higher uh, rather than seven beats per minute higher. So, so this is just an anecdotal example. Uh, one of your questions, Claire, was, uh, is, it, uh, is it appropriate for recreational athletes rather than just in elites? I don't think that it's appropriate in elites or recreational athletes, to be honest. Uh, yes, of course, I know about Mark Allen and the success that he had with Phil Mefton. And, uh, but uh, what I'm talking about is the formula and, and not the, the method or the big picture here or uh, Phil's coaching. I have no idea. It's probably very good since Mark Allen became so good. Uh, but but I think that the formula uh, that's not proof of anything proof of anything and I don't know that Mark Allen actually followed the formula because it seems to me that the formula was developed way later. Uh, looking at this poster, for example, that was from uh, 2015 and uh, not uh, any older than that. So so if you take Mark Allen as an example, from what I know of the training that was done back then with. Uh, him and his contemporaries like Dave Scott, Mike Pig, Scott Molina, and those guys. I've heard quite a few interviews with with them, and uh, they were remarkable athletes for sure. But they did not like triathlon was a very young sport, and they did not really know how to train. They learned as they went along and got better. But uh, starting out, it was just adding a swimming, taking a swimming program, a cycling program, and a running program, and and doing all of it. The volume was crazy, but they were also doing a lot of hard training. So I have very little doubt that uh, that the reason that Mark Allen improved so much with uh, working with Maffetone was that uh, probably he was just chronically fatigued before that, and then he started to uh, to get rid of that fatigue as he started to to train at a lower intensity all the time, or most of the time. I don't know if he actually trained at a low intensity all the time, but. Uh, Training at low intensity all the time is definitely not recommended. But if you are in a state of chronic fatigue when you start out, then uh, that's probably a good thing because then then you can get rid of that fatigue first, and then only then is high intensity interval training going to do you any good. If if you are doing that when you are chronically fatigued, uh, it's just going to push you deeper into a hole. So so for that reason, I think that uh, that this sort of methodology, even though I'm not sure that they did use the math formula, but the methodology made a lot of sense if we assume that they were training the way that i've heard that they they did but of course i don't know the exact extent to to whether this is how true this is how hard they were really training that sort of thing but this would be my my hunch my explanation for why it worked really well for mark allen and we can use the same logic really as to why the math formula may work really well for some recreational athletes because it may But that is, again, coming back to the biggest problem of recreational athletes in endurance sports. They're doing most or all of their training at a moderate intensity. And even though, because their training volume is typically very low, uh, it does not feel like they are in in a state of fatigue, but it does cause like a minor version of chronic fatigue. So you can't quite reach those peaks that your body would otherwise be capable of if you kept the easy days easy. Uh, so it's not so much the perceived fatigue, but just that uh, a lack of reaching the peak capacity that you would otherwise have. And uh, going, uh, making sure that the low intensity days are really low intensity, as uh, the math formula is intended to work. Again, it does not work for everybody, definitely not for me. But probably for a lot of people, it works that way. If you have a higher heart rate, it keeps you in check. It keeps you at low intensity. 
And if that is the case, and uh, this is a recreational athlete that comes from a background of doing all their easy intensity at a, actually a moderate intensity, then uh, I 100% buy that uh, it does improve because doing everything at moderate intensity, that's a recipe for disaster. So, so that's by that logic, the math formula can work really, really well for a lot of athletes. Again, assuming that your the math formula does put you at a heart rate target that is indeed low intensity. So, I'm not trying to like bash on Mathtone because he 100% gets the big picture right, and that is that there's nothing more important in endurance sports than creating a very strong aerobic base. And this goes for long and short events, everything from sprint triathlons to uh, to Ironman. But uh, the way to go about it is uh, definitely not by following the 180 formula, because again, that's going to you should use individual heart rate zones, and it's not to do exclusively long, slow distance either, or just low intensity. Uh, high intensity is so so valuable, but again, you need to do the appropriate amount of it, not to do too much of it. So, of course, the, the higher your total training volume is, the more important it is that most of your volume is low intensity. But for lower training volume, a b- slightly bigger proportion of your training can be high intensity. So I'm rambling a little bit now, I guess, but uh, I'm more or less wrapped up here. Uh, again, I have a pretty strong opinion that this whole math formula thing needs to just go away. You need to find your individual training zones, ideally with metabolic profiling tests uh, that you can do in a lab. Uh, and soon in the field, more news to follow, so watch this space. Uh, or otherwise, just doing field time trials and using percentages of a sustained heart rate. So for example, like your, you do a 20-minute time trial and you can approximate that 95% of that average heart rate is going to be your threshold heart rate, and then you can set your zones based on that. There are plenty of uh, calculators online that allow you to do that. So we won't go into the, into it right now, but that way, since you did your individual time trial, you got, got your individual average 20-minute heart rate, that makes the zones individualized for you, even though those percentages, of course, are also slightly different from person to person if you actually go and do a metabolic profiling test. So it's definitely not perfect, but it's a whole lot better than the 180 minus age formula. And it is for self-coach athletes. It is so important that you spend the time and effort doing this, doing these benchmarking tests and individualizing your training zones. For those of you who are using my training plans, for example, you've seen already that at the very start of the plan, you'll do these field tests in each discipline to set your individual training zones. And then the workout intensities are scaled off of your training zones and based completely off of that. It's not based on the average result of recreational runners in uh, some experiment based on gait analysis. So that's the way that you need to think about it and the way you need to go about it. And then, of course, from time to time, you need to retest and reassess. If things start to feel too easy, too hard, uh, things may have changed, especially if you're a beginner, like even your heart rate zones are more prone to changing. For more experienced athletes, the heart rate zones are typically sort of static whereas your power and pace zones of course will will change but for but they can change the heart rate zones can change slowly over time uh, and uh, for beginners they can change quite quickly actually so that's about it i hope it answers your question clear we have time for one more short question this one comes from my compatriot jonas from finland he writes uh, uh, hi michael uh, what's your opinion about run training in triathlon 
I have 10 years of experience in triathlon and I'm focusing on 70.3. The last six months or so, I've almost exclusively been running on trails and I've noticed uh, an enormous improvement in my running performances uh, on roads. My half marathon PB uh, improved by four minutes to one hour 22 minutes. So that's a, a very good time. Uh, I would love to to hear your your opinion on this and how to include trail running in triathlon training. Thank you, Jonas, for your question. It's a really good one, and uh, yeah, I do agree more or less that I think that and basically any time that you do low intensity training uh, and base endurance training or even recovery runs, zone one to zone two training, you can you can easily do that on trails, and it has great benefits to doing so. Uh, even some quality runs, like uh, if you do tempo runs, maybe a fart lake run here and there can be done on trails. I think as you get closer to your races and uh, the more specific your quality workouts are, not necessarily race specific, but the more, I guess, uh, for example, a threshold run or especially a VO2 max interval run or threshold intervals run, or threshold interval runs, I would prefer that uh, my athletes and myself do them on roads rather than on trails. Uh, a tempo run, a zone free run, for example, that one, yeah, I could see doing on trails like because that is a low enough intensity that you can follow heart rate more so than than pace. Whereas for threshold runs and especially intervals, as we talked about before, heart rate really goes out the window and uh, you should focus more on rating of perceived exertion and pace or power. But uh, as we know, most of your run training is going to be low intensity. Uh, so it makes sense to actually do most of your training on trails if you have the, uh, the, avail- the possibility to do so. It uh, adds a lot of additional benefits. Like, for example, it's, of course, uh, a lot softer on your tendons and joints. You can work a bit more on muscular endurance since trails typically involve a bit more hills and uh, alternations in, uh, in elevation. And, and also just uh, general balance and coordination, using different muscles in your feet, in your lower limbs, uh, you, using your core and stabilizing muscles. It, uh, it is uh, of a great benefit to actually be running on trails for these reasons, to, to include, incorporate more of your muscles uh, that uh, may otherwise actually be sort of, uh, I guess, prevented from, from firing uh, when you're running just monotonously on the road. Uh, not monotonously in terms of pace necessarily, but just the same movement pattern time after time after time, step after step after step. So definitely there are great benefits of doing most uh, most of your easy running and endurance running as uh, running on trails. I have no objections, objectives whatsoever. And I would actually say that, uh, yeah, it's preferable to do that if you have the opportunity to do so. Just make sure that you keep the intensity low enough because it's easy to go a bit too hard on trails because the pace is lower but actually your heart rate may get a bit too high and uh, the perceived exertion as well so so make sure that you stay in that low intensity zone when you do low intensity work and i have to say personally like if there's one thing that i miss from helsinki well two things uh one being my friends but uh, the second being but the second thing would would be definitely uh running in the helsinki central park on the gravel roads and trails there it uh, it's it was five minutes from my doorstep so it was absolutely brilliant i did most of my running there on a, on a mixture of gravel roads and trails and i do really miss that now i run almost exclusively like 95 percent on roads 
And uh, so far, so good. But uh, if I could, I definitely would run a lot more on trails. So good on you for having that uh, opportunity to do so and keep keep doing it. So that wraps it up for this q and I'll link in the show notes to Q&A number 11 called Should you use different heart rate zones for swimming, cycling and running? And that's where I also talked about the, the Maffetone method. And I'll link to the poster uh, abstract that I read from, the development and initial assessment of a novel heart rate training formula. So you can have a look yourself and see if it makes sense to you or not. To me, it just does not add up. So that's about it. Big thanks to our sponsors, Hit Science. The Hit Science course is uh, your portal to getting real in-depth knowledge that you wouldn't even get in a master's degree in understanding the science and the physiological response of high-intensity interval training and, importantly, how to apply it in practice in triathlon and across various sports. Visit scientifictriathlon.com forward slash H-I-I-T to enroll. And uh, remember, the enrollment window is uh, open only until January 31st, so you need to be fast now. And big thanks to Retool. Go to retool.com forward slash T-T-S to learn more about the Retool bike fit process and to find an experienced and authorized Retool bike fitter near you. A link to Hit Science and Retool in the episode description as well. Thank you as always for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.